Uh, good to be here with you guys. Uh, last week, uh, morning was weird, being here at 10 a.m. Uh, you all looked a little better last week. Um, I look the same. I think I might even be wearing the same shirt. Um, so tonight, we're, uh, we're, we're not in First Peter tonight. Uh, and in these, some of these what we call Gap Sundays, uh, we really want to take the opportunity to continue to uh, continue to emphasize the conference. Uh, we had a conference, Good Bluegrass Conference, mid-February. Uh, we called it the Restoration Project, how, uh, how, how the church is going to interact with the culture and bring Christ's redemption to it. And uh, so in these sermons, some of these gap weeks that we have like this week, uh, we're going to continue to kind of emphasize what's it mean for our church to be on mission? What's it mean for our church to be outwardly faced? And uh, so that's what our text is tonight. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, we uh, give you our distractions, and uh, Lord, pray that you would, uh, Lord, that you would take them and sanctify them. Uh, Lord, they're not all necessarily bad things, uh, but they are things that need to be uh, put in the proper place. So, Lord, would you uh, take our cares? Uh, Lord, you you ask us, you command us, cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. So we do that now, Lord. I, I do that as the preacher tonight, Lord. I, I cast upon you my cares, uh, whether it be approval or um, whatever's in my heart, Lord. I pray you would, uh, Lord, you'd get me out of the way, and uh, Lord, that you would speak through your word and by your spirit. And do this even now, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Um, so I, I turned 36 this year. Uh, coming up on my 20th uh, high school reunion, and uh, I can't wait. I kind of wish uh, I kind of wish we had one every year. I'm that weird guy, uh, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that I, I, I love to rub it in all the guys' faces. I'm the one who got to marry Jenna, and they didn't. Um, but I'm becoming aware of my age more and more all the time. I'm, I'm, uh, every time I get a haircut, there's more gray on the floor. Um, uh, every time I don't eat what I'm supposed to, uh, it's harder to recover. Every time I work out, uh, I did Pure Bar on Friday night, and I'm not recovered. Um, I'm really sore. Uh, but my age is becoming really obvious. It's also becoming obvious in what I think is mainstream. Um, I thought of a, a movie this week. That I, 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 instinctively, I thought everybody has seen this. And I uh, looked it up, and I found out that it was released in 1997. Um, it's Good Will Hunting, and it's a great movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should. It's, uh, it's actually on Netflix streaming, and um, you should watch it. But he, here's how the movie goes. There's really two main characters. There's Robin Williams, and there's uh, Matt Damon. Uh, Matt Damon plays, he's a 21-year-old janitor. He's, uh, he's obviously troubled, but he's also secretly brilliant. Uh, he's obviously troubled because he, uh, he, he was physically abused as a child. He, um, he, he grew up through the, a foster care system in South Boston. Uh, so he's really troubled, uh, but he's also brilliant. Uh, you find out that he's brilliant because as a janitor, uh, he's a janitor at Harvard, and uh, a, a professor leaves an unfinished math equation on the board. Uh, and he's working third shifts, he's up there, he, and he writes the answer in at the end of the equation. Of course, the professor comes in the next day and is like, who in the world, I, I couldn't solve this. I couldn't solve this equation, but 
someone mysteriously did, who in the world could do this? Well, through a lot of, uh, through a, a really precarious route, it finds out it was the janitor. And uh, so he's trying to get Matt Damon, uh, the, the professor trying to get Matt Damon to, to enlist as an official student and to take advantage of his, uh, of his really obvious talent now. And uh, he won't do it until he gets arrested. And when he gets arrested, uh, he has two routes he could take. He could either go under the tutelage of the math professor, the judge will release him there, or the judge will put him in jail. So he says, fine, I'll do the formal school thing. He does the formal school thing, and as you can imagine, a, 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 someone who's dropped out of school a long time ago uh, isn't real keen on the structure of formal education. So he bucks and he bucks and he bucks, and so the professor gives him, puts five therapists, he goes through five therapists, and he's got one last one to go. And that therapist is Robin Williams. He gets to Robin Williams, and Robin Williams treats him very differently than the previous five. Uh, Robin Williams crosses all the professional boundaries uh, to, 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 to deeply care for him. He takes a huge, huge risk uh, with Matt Damon. And uh, at one point, they do turn a corner. He breaks through, and he breaks through because in, in each session he says, it's not your fault. I know that you quit, you drop out of school, you quit your job, you can't remain in a romantic relationship because you've convinced yourself uh, that you'll destroy it, so instead of waiting till it gets destroyed, you just quit. And Matt Damon, he's, he, he, for being uh, crass, for being irreverent, uh, for being hard-hearted, he melts. Ron Williams has broken through. How did he do it? What was it that Robin Williams had that the previous five didn't have? Well, really simply, it's empathy. He was willing to be hurt in a very deep way as he did his therapy with him. And today, that's what I want to consider. I want to consider the role of a broken heart, the role that it plays in identifying, empowering, and qualifying us for service in God's kingdom. So let's read Nehemiah uh, 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in that month of Chislev, in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me 
and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord. So really, I had two points tonight. Uh, the first, verses 1 to 3, is a heartbreaking situation. A heartbreaking situation, verses 1 to 3. Uh, verses 4 to 11 is a heartbroken leader. A heartbreaking situation and a heartbroken leader. Uh, where, where we find uh, God's people here in Nehemiah, this kind of odd book that we might, not, we might not be very familiar with, is that we do. We find them in exile. This is the period that First Peter is, is built upon. Uh, God's people have been in exile. They were put in exile in 586 B.C. Uh, Babylon came in. Uh, they destroyed Jerusalem. And some people were killed, but a lot of them t- had one long march from Jerusalem to, to present-day Iraq. It was a long trek, and they were enslaved in Babylon as, ba- as Babylonian slaves. And they were there for 46 years when something happened to Babylon. Uh, Persia overtook Babylon. When P- Persia overtook Babylon, a strange thing happened. The king, King Cyrus, uh, he, 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 he sent out an edict, an edict that said uh, the, the Jews, uh, those, who are from, uh, the, the, those who are from Israel, uh, you're free to go. And so some of them went back, and those are the ones that we read about in those first three verses. Not all of them. A lot of them chose to stay there and assimilate into Babylonian life. But here we pick up the story in 446. Uh, so they have been, uh, they were laid waste 140 years ago. That's a distance pretty much from, from now back to the, to, back to the uh, Civil War. A long time has passed. God's people had been in a rough spot. And then we, and, and, but Nehemiah doesn't know anything of this. But there's some people who have been to Judea who have come back, and now Nehemiah is this high-placed servant. He's a cupbearer to the king, and he asks, how, are, how is everybody? How is everybody back home? And here's what they tell them in verses 2 and 3. They tell them some really bad news. that They're in great trouble and shame. That's verse 3. But why, why, why is it so troublesome? Well, look at the end of verse 3. It's so troublesome because their walls are broken down. So if your walls are broken down, you're susceptible to invasion by the foreign nations. And then their gates have been burnt. This is shameful. Who would want their nation in this kind of place? Nehemiah doesn't. So it's heartbreaking. This is the very same city uh, that David had built. And Solomon achieved even greater levels of glamour and decadence. And it's hard to believe that it gets to this place in verse 3. And under David, the city was established. Jerusalem was very much established, and David was a great king, had great leaders around him, leading all parts of, of, of the country, the economics, the treasury, the religious life, the military. David had a great cabinet around him. The place was secure. And then Solomon even up the ante. Under Solomon, it was, it was the greatest nation in the ancient Near East. The, the economy reached levels that, that no other nation up to that point had reached. It thrived, it was prosperous, people were safe. And 500 years later, the city lies in ruins. 
It's a mess. Doesn't this sound like our world? Syria is a mess. North Korea, the, the, the people of North Korea have been under oppression for decades. There's been political upheaval in Africa for years and years and years. Our neighbors to the south, Mexico, the country's ripped apart by drugs. And then you have our own country. Human trafficking's on the rise. The gap between the rich and the poor is widening. Race relations are poor. Our country's deeply divided as the political streams, the ideologies are getting more and more extreme and farther and farther apart. It's heartbreaking. It looks kind of like Judea, but kind of not. Our walls are down. Our gates have been burnt. This is the place in which we live. Even this week, I saw someone almost drug overdose to death downtown. Since the new year, I've seen prostitution. I saw a fight between middle school kids just a few doors up from my house. It was brutal. This wasn't a little couple slaps in the face. There was blood everywhere. And this is in our backyard. You don't have to turn on the TV to find out that our world is a mess. And we should be asking some questions. What's God think about all this? And what's he want us to do? What's God think about it? Well, I think what God thinks about it is he's heartbroken. Remember our passage we read in that Luke 19 passage? It says Jesus wept. (laughs) And then he pronounces judgment on them. Even as he's pronouncing judgment, he has to do so through tears. And then when we're facing the consequences of our own sin and our own rebellion, God's heart breaks. That's what God thinks about it. And what he wants us to do, he wants us to get involved. I don't know why God wants us to get involved, because if I were God, I would have cut myself out a long time ago. We're so incompetent. Our energy goes for about a minute, and then we wear out. We don't even get up at all. See, God's called us to be his instruments, and he wants us to go to, to depths within his redemption that we're totally unqualified for. But that is his plan. His plan for a broken world are his people. And that's what we see in verse 4. You've got this really heartbreaking situation, then you've got a heartbroken leader, verse 4. Verses 4 through 11. And so really, in, in, in these verses, um, you don't get the whole picture of what, Nehemiah, what happens in Nehemiah. And so since we're not going to be in verse 12 next week, I'll just go ahead and spoil it all. I kind of spoiled um, Goodwill Hunting for you, so I'll spoil Nehemiah for you. Um, what happens is for, he, he, uh, Nehemiah hears verses uh, 1 to 3, and he responds by saying, I'll, I'll get involved. And usually, uh, when you hear about Nehemiah, you, you hear about him as one of the upper echelon leaders through all the scriptures. Uh, he's, he's very determined. Uh, he's a, a great delegator. He's an inspiring communicator, and he's effective, bottom line. He rebuilds this wall in 52 days. He's effective. But if we're not careful, we'll overlook what makes him effective. We'll just look at the fruit of his labor. But we've got to see verses 4 to 11 to see what spurs him on to this project. We have to look at the birth of his leadership and we'll, what we'll find is a heartbroken leader. 
And so these three characteristics are, are kind of come out of verses 4 through 11 of what a heartbroken leader looks like. Verse 4, uh, let's, let's read it together. Again, this is Nehemiah. He's kind of, this is kind of his journal entry in many ways. And he says in verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and, I wept, and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Um, so what's the first one? The first one is to be tender. A heartbroken leader is tender. Um, I took two of probably the most well-known Christian leadership books off my, uh, off my shelf uh, actually this morning. Because uh, I kind of, anyways, I took them off this morning. And uh, one of them is 21 characteristics of a leader. The other is 25 characteristics of a leader. I looked at the table of contents. That's 46. Of those 46 characteristics, none of them even come close to having a characteristic like tenderness. Somehow we've bought a, a model of Christian leadership that can't include this. Now, if you read the rest of Nehemiah, you'll find out he is a no-nonsense, get-it-done, and a really stern, reader, really stern leader. But he's propelled into action by tears. Verse 4 says he wept and he mourned. Now, this weeping is not the kind of weeping you see on reality TV shows. It's not contrived by the cameras. These are the spontaneous response to the very sad news he heard in verses 1 to 3. He wept, but then he mourned. This word for mourn uh, in the original language, uh, the root word for mourn and the root word for stream is the same. So what does that say? It says that mourning is like a stream of tears. It's like it's continuous. This source just goes on and on and on. That's mourning. This is an important step for Nehemiah's leadership. It's really important because this is what enabled him when he left Susa in the Babylonian Persian kingdom and he came home. Now he's able to enter into a place of compassion for these people. So this is what tenderness does. So friend, what breaks your heart? I get heartbroken. Uh, I was heartbroken when the cats lost a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm heartbroken uh, when my kids eat the last piece of cake. Uh, I'm heartbroken when I see myself in the mirror in the mornings. Um, and these are really, that, that might be what makes you cry. But I think it's really important for us to ask, uh, what should we be heartbroken about? See, we usually spend our whole lives uh, um, trying to fit God into our story instead of us fitting into God's story. But when we fit ourselves into God's story and our heart breaks, we can be assured that his heart breaks too. And what Nehemiah did, and this is really what you see in in verses 8 to 11, is you really see is all Nehemiah is doing is telling God how much he loves these people. So this being broken, this being tender, it's a really important step. It's an important step for determining your calling. It's it's an important step for effective leadership. But being broken has its limitations. Because in the end, you, you really don't have to be a Christian to be heartbroken over a cause that Jesus might be heartbroken over. You don't have to be a Christian to be broken about child abuse. 
You don't, have to be, you don't have to be a Christian to be broken about domestic violence or cancer or suicide or world hunger. Anyone who's a human being with a pulse should cry out about these things. But our tears, our brokenness, our tenderness have to take a next step. They have to have a Godward trajectory. They've got to have a theological impulse. And this is what we see in verse 5. Look at verse 5. The second step for, for heartbroken leaders to know your God. To know your God. Verse 5. Nehemiah prays, O Lord. These are the first words of his prayer. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. These are his first words. But if I were Nehemiah, and I was the most trusted advisor of the most important person in the world, which Nehemiah was, being cupbearer to the king means that, that Nehemiah had to drink uh, everything uh, before the king did. That means he was extremely, extremely trusted. And if I knew this kind of person, and I heard about this problem, I'd be trying to get the powerful person's resources on board with the project that I want to begin with the people I care about. But that's not what he does. He doesn't turn to the king and begin to have a negotiation. Nehemiah stops and he prays. And his prayer isn't, doesn't start with a request. His prayer starts with recounting the character of God. And you see by the words he uses, uh, you, you, see, you can tell that he has a God-centered heart. You can also tell he's got a God-centered heart by something that's not really apparent. Uh, in verse one, uh, in verse one of chapter one, you see that this what he's talking about when he heard the news. Uh, it happened in the month of Chislev. And then, if you saw two verse chapter two verse one, uh, you would see that he spoke to the king in the month of Nisan. Well, the distance from Chislev to Nisan is four months, and so for four months. Nehemiah holds off from action and he prays. That is so different than the way I would respond. He heard this awful news and he prays for four months. And I just got to thinking, when I hear a bad report, the immediate thing that I want to do is I want to get, jump into action. The first thing I want is a plan. And oftentimes, I jump too quickly. I miss the chance for the shock of bad news to really turn into a grief that takes up residence in my soul. But I jump quickly. It just comes in one ear and out the other and move on to the next thing. But when we stop and we pray for this season, for this four months, we enter into the realization that our God is great and that he's awesome, that he's our only hope. I think Nehemiah becomes increasingly convinced over these four months that it's, it, God is his, is, his, is his hope. It's not his leadership. It's the Lord. This is the only hope for Jerusalem, is God himself. So in these first couple of verses, you, you see that his eyes are turned outward, don't you? Outward towards Jerusalem and its state. Then he turns upward in, in verse 5 to see the great and awesome God. But now his eyes turn inward. Verses 6 and 7, they turn inward. And what he sees and what we'll see when we look outward, then upward, then inward, is that we'll see a not-so-pretty picture. 
look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which you have sinned against, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So you've got, you've got to be tender, verse 4, a heartbroken leader. Secondly, you've got to know your God. And thirdly, you've got to know your sin. That's verse 6 to 7. The very first part of verse 6 is he's not presuming upon God. He's so aware of his frailty. He's so aware of his true nature that he wouldn't blame God for turning a deaf ear and a blind eye to him. That's why he says what he does. Is that the way that you pray? Or do you just kind of waltz right into God's presence? Like an entitled, uh, like an entitled little ch- child. And expect your request not just to be heard, but to be answered and answered quickly. I think we tend to disregard the fact that we're sinners and we're coming to the presence of a holy God. But that's not Nehemiah. When Nehemiah's eyes turn inward, he sees a man with deep, deep faults. And Nehemiah uses this word we use a lot around here, sin. He doesn't use the word mistakes. He doesn't use shortcomings. He doesn't uh, use personality flaws. He doesn't use stupidity. He doesn't use slip-ups. He doesn't use ignorance. He confesses his sin. And then verse 7, he says, he, he, adds, he, he adds a word, very corruptly. Not kind of, very So is this a practice in your life? Do you, when you turn inward, do you see someone with sin? Specific sin? I think all of us, we, we've developed uh, crafty techniques to deal with being confronted with our sin. We do it so we don't have to confess it. We get defensive, we blame shift, we hide, we minimize our sin. But we rarely stare it in the face and confess it before God and others. And the people who are least likely to stare at their sin and confess it before God and others are leaders. It's easy to confess your sin when you're in a peer relationship. It's even easier to do it when you're the inferior and you're confessing your sin to a superior. But this isn't Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the head honcho. He's the leader for a huge project, and he starts the whole initiative with repentance. Strange. One might think that confessing your failure would disqualify you for leadership, but that's not the case in the kingdom of heaven. So here you have a heartbroken leader. You see him, don't you? He's tender. He knows God. He knows his sin. When we think about ourselves, we put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes, and we see the needs of our world, and it's overwhelming. We see that we might might even see these needs, and we're not heartbroken. 
maybe we're heartbroken, but we don't have much of a theological impulse because we're so stunned by our obsession with self. We're heartbroken for a world, but it's just so that we look like we're heartbroken in front of the world, not because we actually are. We don't have a Godward trajectory in our brokenness. And this whole call to repentance rather than performance is a foreign concept in our view of leadership. But remember our New Testament reading. Remember, Jesus is the one who looked out over Jerusalem and he wept. Nehemiah wept because of the great trouble and shame of Jerusalem. Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he wept, but he wept for their unbelief. Jesus is the one who had gone through Jerusalem and he had performed signs and wonders and miracles. Jesus is the one who's been fulfilling all the promises from Abraham through the prophets and they didn't believe him. They were stubborn. They were stiff-necked. They were cold-hearted. It would be easy to picture Jesus here and he sees Jerusalem and he turns his back on it. And says, I'm done with you. But he didn't do it. Jesus wept. And Jesus wept for you too. Jesus weeps for rebels. So you and I, we're only going to be moved by the misery of others if we're moved in our own hearts by Jesus' love for us and our unbelief. We're only going to have theological impulses and the patience to pray for months when we see that Jesus is the one who prays for us. We'll be free to admit our failure, our weakness, and our sin if we see in our own hearts that Jesus has forgiven us. Friends, the gospel is the only thing that's going to motivate us. Uh, we, could, we could communicate all kinds of needs about a broken world through social media as a church. We could, can, we, we could communicate all kinds of needs in our bulletin. I could confess, or I could, I could communicate all kinds of needs to you standing up here during announcements, and we will still be unengaged. Our problem isn't a lack of information. Our problem is an unbelieving heart. So friends, it's to the degree that we see that Jesus' heart was broken for us will be the degree to which our hearts will be broken for a broken, hurting world in need of grace. So let me ask you again. What breaks your heart? What would entering into a season of prayer look like for you so that you can be convinced that God and not you is the one who's going to fix the world? maybe, where do you need to repent of your own culpability in the world's brokenness? Brothers and sisters, we are the church of Jesus Christ, and God has chosen us with our broken hearts to bring his gospel to bear in a broken world. Let's pray together. Father, we feel ill-equipped. We feel... uh, like your disciples when you said, hey, we need a bunch of bread and fish around here to feed all these people. And they came back with almost nothing. Uh, they brought back enough to feed about three people, not 5,000. And Lord, that's, those are the kind of resources we feel like we have when we look at the world's needs. But we know what you did. We know that you multiplied that through your great power. So Lord, I pray that our insufficiency wouldn't keep us from offering who we are to you. 
Lord, give us faith in your great power. In Christ's name, amen.